we have been going through 1 John, and uh, we're continuing this morning, walking in the light. 1 John and the path to living deeply in Christ. If you have a Bible, either open it up or turn it on or start it up. This is part 11, and we have a great text here, and if you're at home in your family room, get your Bible. The day when there will be no greener grass. You know the saying, the grass is always greener on the other side of the septic tank. Well, there'll be a day when there'll be no greener grass, nothing better to look forward to. The text we're studying is 1 John chapter 3, three verses, great, great verses. Are, they up, uh, uh, are you going to put those verses up on the screen? Okay. Why don't we read this kind of uh, aloud and together, and don't mumble it. These are just really good verses. Let's read them together. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this, sorry, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Great text. I want you to notice one thing, that that text is talking about uh, when Jesus comes back. It's in the last part of that second verse where it says, when, when he appears. So this is not talking about the hope we have when we die, we go to be with Jesus. Our spirit goes to be with Jesus when our body is laid into the cemetery. That's not what this text is about. This text is about when Jesus comes back and everything is finalized in all of its glory and splendor. It's truly a, a marvelous portion of scripture. It feels like holy ground. And it's interesting to guess just what might have caused John to delve into this subject right at this point in his letter. It's as, it's as, it's as though the Holy Spirit, see what he has just been writing about, if you look back to what he was just talking about, in verse 29 of chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, he said, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That's what he said in 2.29. Now, John's going to expand on that righteousness aspect later on in chapter 3. But it's almost as though when he writes those words in verse 29, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It's, it's almost as though he has one of those moments with the Lord. A kind of uh, spirit-driven insight where a, a, a thought that started just sort of at the side of the subject, being born of him, suddenly comes to the center. Suddenly that phrase, born of him, 29b, it just seems to catch John's heart. And even though John is now very old, toward the end of his life, it, it's as though 
he still sees something fresh in that phrase, born of him. See, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Or behold, in the King James, stare at this for a minute. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And what I like about that is sheer old age. How many years has he been following Jesus now? He's in his 90s, probably late 90s. So just old age is soon going to rob John of his earthly life. He's preached and he's taught and he's encouraged Christians for more than half a century. And yet, and yet one more time, one more time, as he writes these words, his, his heart, his soul is flooded with this fresh treasuring, this fresh past, this understanding of those words, born of him. We're actually born of him. And he specifically tells us we're to wonder at this. He calls us to think about this. You think you know it. John would say, you think you've heard it. You've talked about being born again, saved, converted. You've used those phrases probably for many, many, many years, but you think you already know it, but look at it again. Study this again. That's John's heart. And so you, you can't help get the idea as John writes this wonderful letter so full of doctrine and instruction that right in the middle of it, He's trying to say, Don, it's very easy for you to think of your identity in Christ and to have that just sort of flatten out over the years. It can get too small, too common. John seems concerned that the foundational understanding we have of what our lives are right now, what they are all about, that it has to be big enough to weather everything in life and to hold all the structures of what God wants to build in our lives of his kingdom. Late one night, as I was studying this text, I read the words of one of the great Bible teachers of this last century, listen to these words from the heart of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he writes on this very text and this subject of being born of God. Listen to what he says. One of the central problems of the church today is the failure to fully realize what a Christian is. This is the central truth to know and apply. Oh, we get so full of complaints and unhappiness. They arise partly from our own faults, partly from what others do to us, partly from what the whole world does to us. Think of the situation we're all in now. But all our unhappiness is ultimately to be traced back to this, that we are looking at things that are happening to us instead of looking at the vision held up before us in these marvelous verses. It is because we do not see ourselves as children 
of God. We, we do not go through this life and world in the way that this text indicates. This is why trials discourage and get us down. We do not relate the parts to the whole. We do not put them into this context. We live too much with the things that are immediately in front of us instead of putting everything into the context of our standing and our destiny as being children of God. That's a great quote. I think John would agree wholeheartedly with those words from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I think the Apostle Paul would too. I was looking what what he said in Ephesians 1, 17 to 19. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Look at this. Having, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's not, that's not these eyes, right? He's not talking about these eyes. About these eyes. That, that you may know, I mean, they know already, but he wants them to know that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious, see, John says children of God. Paul says inheritance, but you see the same idea, don't you? the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. So why are both John and Paul so moved? Paul, John says, behold, think this through. What, what, what we're going to be, it hasn't appeared yet, but it's, but it's coming. Think about it. Behold it. Paul says that the eyes of your heart could be, get the cataracts removed. You need LASIK surgery on the eyes of your heart so you see things clearly. Okay, why are both John and Paul so moved, so anxious that this prayer be answered in our understanding? Because there's something Father God wants to do in our hearts with this old truth about being born of God. And that's what we're going to examine today. I have three thoughts. Nothing changes, does it? Point number one. John defines the nature of true conversion and spiritual life. He, he actually places the same idea three times in three verses. Uh, born of him, 229. Children of God, 3-1. Children of God again, 3-3. Three, three. Here's the problem. I've heard, I grew up in a, in a pastor's home, as long as I can remember. I've heard all those terms for most of my life, and so have a lot of you. A person is born again. He or she becomes a child of God. And, and it's, it's so right and it's so fitting to use those terms because the scriptures are just packed with those terms. But it, it's so easy to use the terms, born again, child of God, children of God, born of God, and become so familiar with them that, that they become 
labels instead of descriptions. And that's not the same thing. In other words, I, I need to constantly remind myself that one is not a child of God in the same sense that one is a liberal or a conservative. John is saying, no, that's not it. I'm not talking about some tag stuck onto the convert's life. And that's why the scriptures, with, with no feeling of embarrassment or exaggeration whatsoever, speak of God's seed. The Greek word is literally sperma. God's seed getting into his children with, with the life of God himself. So it's not a matter of external religious observance. It's not a matter of just certain doctrines being considered and memorized, cataloged, filed away in my mind. Labels don't create reality. They're just labels. I mean, it's, it's a silly illustration, but you, you could take, you could take uh, all the w women that are here today and you could stand them all across the front of the church and you could put a label, you could put a label around their neck that said pregnant. Now, here's my question, JD. Does that make all those women pregnant? Or you could have a mother who's, who's expecting, and you could put a label on there that says not pregnant. But that doesn't make her not pregnant. Because, because and here's the point, it's not the label, it's, it's the life inside that's the issue. And that's the point John is, is trying to make here. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, that's the label. And then he says, and so we are. That's why he repeats it. This is not just a label. It's a reality. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Or look at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be, that's the future when Jesus comes, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So see how John works this truth in. We are called children of God. That's what he says. And, and that is exactly what we are. That is what we are right now. That's what he does. We're called children of God. Then he says, that's what we are. We looked at that. And then he says, that's what we are right now. Later on, John's going to write about some wonderful changes that will take place in our beings when Jesus comes again. But here's one thing, church, here at home, wherever you are, here's one thing that will never change. I will never be more God's child than I am now. There will be a fuller manifestation of that but I will never be more God's child and you will never be more God's child than you are right now. No wonder, no wonder when John starts to talk about all of this, he says all you can do is, all you can do is, is kind of stop 
with your mouth open and behold, behold what manner of love. Now we need to see how John presses this truth more practically than we often think through. Okay, point number two. I want to talk to you about how seeing and loving Jesus is related to growing in holiness now and eternally. Look at 1 John 3, last half of verse 1 and then verse 2. The reason why the world, the world does not know us. If you, if you expect to be understood by the world, if you expect not to be misinterpreted by the world, if you expect not to be misjudged by the world, then I don't know where you get that expectation because you don't get it from the New Testament. Here's what the New Testament says about you. The world has absolutely no clue how to figure you out as a child of God. It does not know how to relate to you at all. Do you see it right there in the text? The reason why the world does not know us. It just doesn't recognize. What are you living for? Why do you think the way you think? And there's a reason it doesn't know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now he does the two tenses. We are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, there's the blessed hope, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So here's what I want to see in, in those that verse and a half or so. Here are the thoughts. I have three of them. This is all into the second point. First, the world around us can't make any sense of our lives. So when John says the world does not know us, 1B, he doesn't mean your neighbor doesn't know your name, where you live, or what you do for a living. It doesn't mean that. He means that the world, the world cannot figure you out. It can't understand what you live for, what you long for. It's, it's supposed to be miles from what motivates their life. Second, he says the reason the world doesn't know us is that they didn't know Jesus Christ. He says that very clearly in the last part of the first verse. The reason why, so that's pretty specific, here's the why. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it, it, it did not know him. If they followed Jesus, if they saw glory in Jesus, then our lives would make perfect sense. Now I want you to remember that point because it's going to become central to John's argument in just a few minutes. The third thing from these verses is perhaps the most important of all. What makes us different from the world so different that John says the world doesn't, just doesn't know us at all, is, is this. We have seen the beauty and wonder of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what he says in that second verse. We are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because... So there... That's the important word there. When Jesus comes, we're all going to be like him. Why are we going to be like him then? What is it about the second coming of Jesus? Our bodies raised, that's the blessed hope. The second coming, the resurrection of the body, that is the New Testament blessed hope. 
The blessed hope in the New Testament, precious as it is, the blessed hope in the New Testament is not Don Harbin's going to die and his spirit goes to be with Jesus. That's called incompleteness in the scripture. Spirit separated from the body. The blessed hope is Jesus comes back, bodies raised, new creation. That's what we're all waiting for. So John says, we're God's children now for sure. Never will be more. But what we're going to be, we're not done yet. That's what he says. Why aren't we done? Well, because he hasn't appeared yet. When he appears, we shall be like him. Because, here's the reason, we will see him as he is. There's so much in that verse. We will all become like Jesus completely when we see him fully. Now that's very important because it explains a great deal about my, your, pr present pursuit of, of holiness because we don't see Jesus completely right now. Our vision is dimmed. But when we do see Jesus completely, John says, we will be completely like him. Completely like him in desire, in holiness, in sinlessness. So the important question for us right now, I think is kind of obvious. How is the vision of Jesus Christ related to our personal holiness right here presently in this world where we don't see him perfectly? We've already had a hint to the answer when we looked at how John's description of how unholiness grows in our lives right now. We studied these words just recently. Do not love the world, okay? Now he's not talking about looking at Jesus. He's talking about looking at the world around us. This is a, this is a problem for us. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and he identifies these three things. One, the desires of the flesh. Two, desires of the eyes. Three, pride and possessions. One and two are the things we want. Three, that's the things we have. All of that, he says. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So as these earthly material things, as they capture our attention, our vision, well, they, they draw us into ghastly, distorted, empty infatuations. That's the problem. These desires hollow us all out because we become what we give our attention to. So all sin is birthed in desire before action. Nobody sins out of duty. Nobody sins out of duty. We sin out of desire before the action and we desire what we set our gaze on. So that's John's 
description of how unholiness grows in our lives. But our text today isn't talking about that. Our text today is talking about how Christ-likeness grows in our lives. And John says the same process works in reverse to produce holiness in our lives right now in this world. Only the object our, of our attention is changed from the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride and possessions. It shifts from that to the beauty and glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I still fall into sin. So do you. And the reason is in our text, because we don't see Jesus as he is yet. He hasn't appeared. We don't see him face to face. We don't see him as he is. And so I'm not perfectly righteous. But, but hopefully, we do see him increasingly as we give our minds over to his word, his church, his spirit. This is what the writer of Hebrews means when he talks about when he talks about fixing our eyes on him, and then this text in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, look at, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. See it? It's not perfect yet. It's not like what John is talking about when Jesus comes. But we're being transformed into the same image, progressive from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So this vision of Christ, it's so crucial for holiness. People, people who, who don't seriously study the Word, who are faithless when it comes to the church, and I know it's different now, but I'm talking about the church under normal circumstances, who aren't disciplined with the church, who aren't disciplined in the word, who don't spend time worshiping and observing the glory of Jesus, all they will have as a tool to build a holy life is, is a command that you had better do this. That's a hard way to live the Christian life. The better way is the one John describes in our text. Beholding the glory of the Lord, you see something of the greatness of Jesus and the wonder of Christ and the and understand what it means to be children of God, never more children than we are right at this moment, and the blessed hope that we have before us, and you set your mind on those eternal things, then you start not just to pursue righteousness, but you start to prefer righteousness, and you've got fuel in the tank as you try to follow Christ. It's not just a list of rules that, well, I hope I can do the best I can. Last point, number three. Transformation must begin now. It's in that third verse. Everyone who thus hopes in him, if you don't think these are strange words, I'm going to try and make you see how strange they are, purifies himself as he is pure. Purifies himself. Finish this phrase. What can wash away my sin? So what is this? 
purifies himself. This isn't talking about the blood of Jesus. Don't you think that's strange? I thought it was the blood of Jesus that made us clean and pure. Whence these strange words, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, purifies herself. Do you see how strange those words are? Actually, the verse will be misinterpreted unless we read it in the way it's threaded into the context. So if you look at it like this, beloved, we are, we are God's children. Remember God's seed in us. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see John's argument. It's different from what most people assume. The hope John describes isn't just the hope of our spirits going to heaven when we die. The specific hope that he mentions twice is the hope of being like Jesus when we see him. When Jesus comes again and our bodies are raised and we receive what the New Testament calls the blessed hope of the believer, I will no longer have to live with my pathetic spiritual weaknesses. I will never have to live with my pathetic little compromises. Don't you, seriously, as long as you follow Jesus, don't you get to the place where you just are sick to death of your own sinfulness at times? I do. I do. I want to be so rid of that. There's nothing I want to be rid of more. That'll all be done. I will live for bigger, more glorious interests. And I will finally be, at long last, completely, gloriously happy and fulfilled. This will be the day when there will be no greener grass anywhere else. Imagine your life. Just picture it. With none of the tainted affections that you now possess, you'll look back. This is what we're going to do. If there's never going to be sorrow in heaven, explain to me why John says he will wipe, Jesus will wipe away the tears from our eyes. Let me tell you where I think the tears are going to come from. Here are the tears that will be in heaven, at least for the first part. I'm going to look back at my life here, whatever the Lord gives me. I'm going to look back and I'm going to, and I'm going to, and it will hurt to think of how much more I could have done for my Lord. And I will look at all the stupid, petty, insignificant, trivial things that captured my attention and wasted my time. And I will see, see, John says, when he appears and I see him face to face, all of a sudden it's gonna hit me. What, John, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Of course, that'll just be for a moment, that pain. John says, so we are God's children now. And, and you need to 
Jesus hasn't come yet, but you need to put yourself there mentally and allow it to cleanse and purify and reorient your heart just in increasing measure. Prepare for that time now. It is, it is the ultimate hypocrisy to say that I want to be like Jesus then, but I have no real interest in being like Jesus now. That won't work. Set your life in the direction of Christ-likeness. Do it now and do it with growing anticipation. Learn from that vision of the gloriously happy, fulfilled, most exuberantly satisfied life ever lived, the life of Jesus. And, and learn from the limited vision of Jesus you now have. Purify your life with it. Let it, let it wean you from the downdraft of the lust of the eyes and of the flesh and pride and possessions. The, the fountain of his life it is so much fresher than the drain of this world. Fix your gaze not just on a better world, which is coming, but on a better you, when we will be like him in our own risen bodies, and we will see him exactly as he is. And finally, every altar call, every church service, every Bible study, every home group, everything that you've been working and working and working, finally, finally, we will be just like him. And everyone said, amen. I'm assuming it came through that mask you're wearing over your face. Thank you, Jesus, for your precious word. Fill our lives with a hope that gives us strength and confidence and the anticipation of what we will be in Christ. Let that, let that purify and motivate us now as we place ourselves at the second coming of Jesus. Do your transforming work joyously, completely, and deeply. In all of our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Let's stand together.